1: everybody, welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good
0: podcast about bad relationships. My name is Stacy. Hey friends, I'm Alicia. Y'all welcome, we're so excited you're here today. Thanks for joining us for another ride of marital misadventure.
1: Alicia, who do you have for us today?
0: I got a story today, my friends. I'm sending the last of my stories out this season with a firecracker of a lady, Lorraine Baracco. Sopranos actress? Sopranos actress, Mm -hmm. but... Oh, so, so much more. A little bit of heartache in her life. It's a fool's game, using the Bonnie Tyler hit for this one. Let's get into it. Lorraine Bracco was born October 2nd, 1954. She's a Libra girl, the second of three children to her parents, Eileen and Salvatore Bracco. Is it Salvatore or Salvatore? I
1: you'd don't have, know. You'd have
0: to ask him. The family lives in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Until Lorraine's about 10 years old, and then they moved to Hicksville, Long Island. Lorraine graduates from Hicksville High School in 1972 before moving in 1974 to France to pursue a modeling career. Hmm. Yeah. Nice work if you can get it. Hicksville, New Jersey, to France. So all the way back in middle school, Lorraine was just not a good student. She had a hard time focusing on her studies and didn't really have a clear direction for what she wanted to do. She will credit a very special seventh grade teacher named Artie Horowitz with taking her under his wing and helping her, Lorraine, find her path in life. See, Mr. Horowitz directed plays at her middle school. Gotcha. And when Lorraine, like so many other kids that have come before her, found the group of Artie kids, theater kids, mm-hmm. I have a group where I belong, mm-hmm. and the heavens mm-hmm. rejoice. The theater kids would stay after school to paint sets or just hang out and be part of a crew that understood each other. Lorraine had found her community. Sure. Not only was Lorraine kind of unsure of herself and not doing well in her classes, but this is terrible. I don't even know how a middle school gets away with this. She'd been voted the ugliest girl in sixth grade the year before. Wow. Yeah. And ended up going
1: to France for a modeling career.
0: Correct. That, wow. Lorraine, firecracker. Bullied. She's amazing. Lorraine describes Mr. Horowitz as an authority figure to the drama club kids, but also the first adult that talked to them like they were real people. Remember having teachers like that Mm -hmm. that just, oh, there Mm -hmm. you are. Yeah. Mr. Horowitz encourages Lorraine to read books and apply herself and always really assured her that he saw a great deal of potential in her. Mr. Horowitz is unwilling to accept her lack of motivation or any feelings she has about mediocrity about herself. You're worth more than that. What a key figure to have in a developmental path. Yeah. So Lorraine gets to high school. She continues hanging out with the creative crowd. She blossoms when she gets her braces off at the age of 15 and kind of begins to start to feel pretty. Her best friends are two gay boys, who are super interested in their artistic pursuits fashion photography costume design and her two BFFs start using Lorraine as a model to practice what they're into Gotcha be our model for this dress let us do this mm-hmm. makeup on you let us take pictures of you one of Lorraine's friends a boy named Jeff Curland would later become a professional costume designer in Hollywood and would work on many Woody Allen movies. In high school, he tells Lorraine, Jeff does, that she should get a modeling portfolio together. He's the first person that suggests that Lorraine could be a real model. But Lorraine, like ugliest girl in sixth grade, is a little skeptical that that would even be a possibility. Lorraine and all of her friends, though, do go back to middle school and visit Mr. Horowitz. Most of the kids had clear plans for going to college, but... Lorraine didn't have any solid plans for her future, which bothers Mr. Horowitz a lot. Lorraine, again, credits this very caring, committed teacher for being concerned enough about her to kind of pester her. She'll say that she doesn't know where she'd be without him. One day, frustrated with her, Mr. Horowitz asks her, what do you want to do with your life, Lorraine? What's your passion? What's just the one thing you want to do? And Lorraine felt vulnerable enough to say, I think I want to be a model. She thought it was unrealistic, even laughable, right? But Mr. Horowitz looks at her and says, okay, why don't we find out if you can do it? Mr. Horowitz encourages Lorraine to call modeling agencies and make appointments. Then he even offers to drive her into the city for the meetings. First stop, where do you think they go? Eileen Ford? You got it. Eileen Ford Modeling Agency at the Ford Modeling Agency, where she meets the infamous and famous Eileen Ford. Eileen Ford looked at her and said, too heavy needs a no job. Hmm. Well, it's okay. Hold on. Hold on. We're not done with our story. Discouraged, naturally, Lorraine suggests they just go home. Like, rejected once, I'm out of here. I don't, I don't really want to be that vulnerable again. But Mr. Horowitz insists they go to Lorraine's next appointment, which is with, Wilhelmina models. Hmm. Lorraine meets with Willie and said she was absolutely awestruck by Wilhelmina's beauty and glamour. And Willie walked around chain smoking, studies Lorraine for a long time and finally (laughs) says, I don't know what it is about you, but I like it. And Lorraine was signed on as a Wilhelmina model. So Lorraine works as a model throughout the rest of her high school years, doing catalog shoots, sewing patterns, the occasional magazine shoots for Mademoiselle and Seventeen. And once she was done with high school, graduate 1972, and is off to Paris. Wee oui, wee oui. To become a model. And, if you can imagine, not too much of a stretch here, as a beautiful young model in France, Lorraine having the time of her life. She even poses for Salvador Dali once. <sighs> he asked her to pose nude for him. at a later time and she refused but now wishes that she had done it at the time she said it was just too much for me so he gave me a pencil drawing of an erect penis as a consolation gift dolly his spider webs are always interesting Where he shows up in stories
1: yeah i feel like she understood what he was actually asking for
0: we have our first love Hmm. not our first husband but our first love this is with a polish prince Lorraine says the man who transformed her, girl, you'll be a woman soon, right? From girl to woman, was Polish Prince Jean Poniatowski. I hope I'm doing that right. There are a few different pronunciations. P-O-N-I-A-T-O-W-S-K-I. Lorraine meets her Polish prince when mm-hmm. she's 21 years old. And remember her good friend Patrick is always talking about how his sister was married to a prince. And Lorraine, not understanding European royalty, she asks her friend Patrick, Prince of what? And Patrick goes on to explain that his sister's husband, Jean Poniatowski, was a direct descendant of Stanislaw Poniatowski, the last king of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, which gave him a title but no kingdom. Right. Family, though, is the Poniatowski family, though, is still highly respected and prominent. Unfortunately, Patrick's sister is divorcing Jean, But the split is very amicable, and eventually Patrick will adduce Lorraine to Jean, who was a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, handsome, and charming older man. Lorraine is 21. Her Polish prince is 45. Yikes. He asks her to dinner, and she excitedly agrees. And as you can imagine... Sean's life was glamorous and sophisticated with constant travel and parties with wealthy couples. During their time dating, Lorraine had, whoa, magical adventures. You ready for this? She goes to a formal dinner at uh, the Versailles Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
0: in the Hall of Mirrors at the Versailles. Sure. Yeah. She'll go quail shooting on Queen Elizabeth's property in Scotland. Sure. Like you do. Like you do. I just went up to the Queens for some quail shooting. (laughs) Lorraine and Jean will take trips to exotic locations like Morocco and Rio as well. The 70s. After they'd been together a little over a year, it's obvious that the relationship is more than just a little fling, and Lorraine has 100% fallen in love. When they had been together almost three years, Lorraine finally gets the nerve to ask her Polish prince, what his intentions are toward her. And he was surprised by her question and laughed. She got the picture real quick and tried not to cry and said, well, yeah, I guess princesses aren't born in Brooklyn and got up from the dinner table. Well, wow. In her 2006 memoir, On the Couch, Lorraine Brocco writes, Jean pursued me. He told me he loved me. I didn't believe him. I believed that laugh eventually jean and i would become friends again after jean and i parted i realized i had been living his life instead of living my own as much as i loved the world that he showed me and everything that he made me aware of it wasn't me
1: yeah that's it's a heartache mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. but a fool's game man but but like t- yeah for him to laugh at the idea that they could be married one day
0: Yeah, that that says a lot. But this isn't just trashy breakups. We got trashy divorces, too. Let me introduce Lorraine's first husband, Hmm. Daniel Gerard. Lorraine writes, this is really, she's a smart lady. Warning bells should have been going off in my head when I leapt into a marriage with a man I knew didn't love me. In 1979, I was a 24-year-old model living in Paris. Ah, Paris, the city of romance. I was ready for love. I ignored all the signs that told me to run the other way. What man is she talking about? She is talking about her first husband, Daniel Gerard. He is a sexy French salon owner who Lorraine desperately wants to believe was her prince charming. Since the actual prince didn't work out. Correct. They meet at a fashion shoot and they start dating, but Lorraine knows she's not the only girl in Daniel's life. In fact, she said that she wasn't even number one. But that's okay. Lorraine ignores all of the internal warning signs going off in her because the fantasy, she, as she calls it, was, quote-unquote, too intoxicating. Then she found out she was pregnant. Mm. When she told Daniel she was pregnant, he asked her what she wanted to do, and she said, where I come from, if you're pregnant, you get married. And he kissed her and said then that's what we'll do. They fly to New York and they get married in January 1979. Their daughter, Margot was born on April 25th, 1979. Oh, the idyllic dreams of the future last for Lorraine about five months after she gives birth. Daniel's restless. He's not spending much time at home. Lorraine is lonely and it isn't too long before she gets proof that Daniel is having an affair. When she finally has enough, Lorraine calls the Polish prince, Prince John, oh, hey. and is like, hey, man, I need $5,000. Wow. And the Polish prince says, of course, and doesn't ask any additional questions. Lorraine, she's such a badass, uses that money to rent an apartment for her and her daughter. And Lorraine says that leaving Daniel was so liberating and made her realize how much better it was to be alone than to be with an emotionally absent partner. Lorraine supports herself and her daughter by continuing to model and taking a few small acting parts in French productions. But it wouldn't take very long before her life would drastically change with her next relationship, which we're going to talk about right after we take a break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll see you on the flip. All right, Alicia, who's our next mystery man? A little actor you may have heard of named Harvey Keitel. Oh, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Wolf. So Lorraine is 27 years old and had lived in Paris for nearly a decade when she meets Harvey Keitel. Some friends in New York were in Paris and they had invited Lorraine to go out with them to a party. Lorraine had been separated from Daniel for over a year and had finally just begun feeling comfortable enough to date again. She doesn't really want to go to the party and she's broke, but her friends insisted and her friends were even like, please come. We will cover the cost of a babysitter. Come on out, have a good time, which is super nice. Yeah, I mean, and from New York. Yeah, I guess soon after arriving, Lorraine meets Harvey Keitel and describes it as quote, one of those electric moments, unquote. He takes her hand and says, hello. And it wasn't what he said that got her attention. It was how he said it in a familiar accent that felt like home. And she said to him, Brooklyn. And he nodded and said back to her, Brighton Beach. Mm-hmm. She writes, I knew immediately that he wanted me and I wanted him. <laughs> <laughs> My instinct was to run in the other direction, but I didn't. Within an hour, we were walking out of the party together together. We stood in the street kissing in the rain. Wow. Mm-hmm. Paris, man. I'll get you every time, <laughs> bunch of suckers. God, it's such a nice city. I love it. Lorraine admits that she had such a strong attraction to Hardy Keitel that she slept with him that first night. But fearing that he would be bad news, Lorraine sneaks out in the morning without telling him, waking him up, or leaving her number. Wow. Well. Escape, right? But what happens? A few days later, Harvey Keitel tracks her down and is calling her. And she's flattered by his tenacity and will agree to go to dinner with him. Harvey and Lorraine, the two are drawn to each other and they are soon enough in a relationship. And Lorraine learns that Harvey's tough exterior was really just a protective veneer. He had had a rough childhood and was actually very shy and had a small stutter. So what irony, right? He plays these fearless characters in movies and had carried that act over to his personal life, but that's not who she sees. Harvey had joined the Marines and found a sense of belonging and accomplishment and acceptance for the first time. Uh, The loyalty that is instilled into Harvey by the Marine Corps was very important to him. For Lorraine's part, she says after Daniel's lack of faithfulness and attention, Harvey's intense focus and his dedicated loyalty to his girl was very appealing. She'll write, at 44, Harvey didn't have a string of ex-wives and a bunch of abandoned kids the way some actors did. He wanted quality, not quantity. When he held me in his arms and told me he'd been looking for me all of his life, I was completely convinced. Yeah, that's pretty heavy duty. Harvey returns to New York City and soon Lorraine and Margot, her daughter, decide to move back to New York also. Lorraine and Kid move into Harvey's Tribeca Loft in downtown Manhattan. But it was very different yet. This area had not been gentrified. In fact, Lorraine describes the neighborhood as desolate and eerily deserted at night. Within a few months, Lorraine Bracco and Harvey Keitel are committed to each other, although they never marry. Hmm. Harvey wants to marry Lorraine, but she didn't want to get married after her first marriage didn't work out. Lorraine writes that she, quote, equated marriage with a death of the self, unquote, and said her first marriage left her self esteem so damaged. But she'll continue, she and Harvey, she'll write, were as good as married. One day, Harvey encourages Lorraine just to, you know, go down to the actor's studio with him. Sit in on a class just to see what she thinks. And Lorraine's lonely and bored and she's excited to go out and meet new people. And when she gets there, she realizes that the actor's studio is a pretty serious place that, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, (laughs) takes acting pretty seriously. Right there in the name. (laughs) Harvey had seen the potential in his love and wanted her to study with the best in the business. So every Tuesday and Friday for the next year, Lorraine Bracco sits in the back of the room at the actor's studio, just watching, but never saying a word. One day, she'll say to Harvey, I think I could do this. And Harvey's happy to hear it and had hoped that she would see her potential. And Lorraine will write, through Harvey, I came to believe in myself. Lorraine begins studying in earnest, acting as a craft, and finds that she really does enjoy it. The couple's thriving, and they're thrilled to find out that Lorraine is pregnant. Huzzah! She will give birth to their daughter, Stella, on December 10th, 1985, and Harvey is powerfully attached to their daughter from the moment of her birth. And of course, Lorraine wants him to love their baby, but his personality is so intense, That his feelings of love and protectiveness over the baby, she says, could be very overwhelming at times. But Lorraine is happy to have an involved partner as opposed to... Yeah, Daniel back in Paris. Her uninvolved husband, right? This is a fantastic time in Lorraine's life. She has two healthy and happy daughters, a loving and committed relationship. She had just begun work that she was passionate about. And on the surface, Harvey seemed happy too, but underneath, trouble was brewing. As it does. It's a heartache. Lorraine writes, In my simplistic view, if your life was good and you were with people who loved you, you should be happy. I didn't understand the way old wounds from childhood could fester even when there was joy in the present moment. I had no idea that low self-esteem ground into you from childhood didn't lift automatically when you achieved success. Those are some pretty true words, aren't they? Yep. It was this mindset that caused Lorraine to be floored. When Harvey just didn't come home one day. Oh my God. Went out for milk, never came home. Wow. There's a lot of that going on lately. (laughs) Harvey, like, is typically in touch. He checks in with Lorraine multiple times every day, and then just nothing. Just poof. Poof. Disappeared. And when he wasn't home by the next morning, Lorraine calls his good friend, who comes over right away. And when Harvey's friend arrives at the loft, he says, Lorraine, I swear I thought those days were over. Lorraine, curious. What on earth do you mean, friend of Harvey's? And... Lorraine learns that before Harvey had met her, Harvey was struggling with a cocaine misuse problem. Shocked, confused, Lorraine has a hard time processing this new information. The friend, though, assured her that he would help her find Harvey.
1: Okay, so Harvey's legit missing and probably relapsing. Is that what's happening? Missing and relapsing, yes. And has a baby. Wow, Mm -hmm. okay.
0: That's terrifying. So later that day, Harvey just walks right in and apologizes okay. and tells her that what he was doing had nothing to do with you, Lorraine. And this infuriates mm. Lorraine. I guess you can imagine because shockingly she couldn't understand why he would think something like this had nothing to do with her, when they have two daughters uh-huh. and had built a life together. Mm-hmm. So Lorraine, in a classic trashy divorces moves, starts screaming and throwing plates at Harvey Keitel. And Harvey doesn't say anything, which makes Lorraine angrier because she wanted answers and he isn't giving any answers. He's just saying nothing. Harvey tells Lorraine that it would never happen again. And then he went to bed for two straight days. Yikes. The couple will get past the incident, and Lorraine prays that Harvey's telling the truth about it actually not happening again. And she'll throw herself into developing an acting career. And Harvey supports her every step of the way. Sure, and probably deep in the back of her mind, she's just waiting for it to happen again. Well, to be fair, Harvey Keitel is crucial to Lorraine Brocco's acting career. As an already established and respected actor himself, Keitel is able to introduce Lorraine to many people. Sure. And get her foot in the door as his girlfriend. One day, Harvey runs into Ridley Scott. When he's just walking down, you know, a New York street. Sure. During their chat, Ridley Scott mentioned he was looking for an actress for his next film, and she needed to be, wait for it, quote, a kind of tough girl from Queens, unquote. Wow. Does Harvey Keitel know anyone like that? I got your girl, Ridley. (laughs) Send me a dozen cookies. Send me a gift basket. (laughs) I've cast her. That film was Someone to Watch Over Me. And Harvey convinced Ridley Scott to meet with Lorraine, and once Ridley Scott agreed, Harvey helped Lorraine prepare for that audition. This would be the first major film role that Lorraine has and the start of a fantastic career. Meanwhile, Lorraine's sister, Lizzie, is also trying to break into acting, and Lizzie had landed a small part on the TV drama Crime Story. Also, Lizzie had recently met a young actor named Aidan Quinn. Hmm. Aidan Quinn and Lizzie Bracco are still married to this day. Wow, okay. There's a little spiderweb for you. Lorraine gets great reviews for her role in Someone to Watch Over Me, even though the film itself isn't really a blockbuster hit. Harvey is super proud of her. But growing increasingly frustrated with the direction of his own career, Harvey had early success, right, and appeared in Mean Streets, Taxi Driver. Alice doesn't live here anymore, just to name a few. But in the last few years, his career had stalled. Harvey's getting a little discouraged, getting a little depressed. And along comes Martin Scorsese. And Martin Scorsese is going to be like, hey, Harvey, let me cast you in the role of Judas in The Last Temptation of Christ. This is 1988. Mm -hmm. And Harvey's thrilled. Lorraine is also happy for him, but also concerned about the impending emotional outbursts that Harvey is having during the filming Hmm. because he gets so committed to his roles that he plays. Lorraine writes, I knew Harvey. He would become Judas. Meanwhile, in Lorraine's world, she's cast as Sonny Crockett's wife on Miami Vice. Well, well. But... Lorraine proves to have not one bit of chemistry with Don Johnson, and she was fired. Wow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, naturally disappointing and humiliating for her. Most everyone who worked on the show was relieved that the role would be recast, but one of those stars, Edward James Olmos, was very sweet to Lorraine about her getting fired. Just put that in your back pocket. Lorraine is further disappointed when she was convinced that she had nailed her audition for the lead of the film, Working Girl. And it's sad to report that she does not get that part. Because Melanie Griffith that got it? That is correct. It. And
1: that is Don Johnson's...
0: Spiderweb Ex- City, Wow, Sonny Crockett. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. But it all worked out because Lorraine was available when Martin Scorsese was casting his new mob drama, Goodfellas, in late 1988. And Lorraine is cast in the role of Karen Hill, and it would be her breakout role starring alongside Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, and Joe Pesci. This is such a good story, right? Mm -hmm. Spiderwebs. Meanwhile, Lorraine's relationship with Harvey continues to be supportive, but volatile. They're crazy about each other, but they have a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And the disappearing for a few days at a time started happening again. And they begin to spiral, and Lorraine will write, Harvey and I shared a crazy love, crazy passion, crazy fights, and crazy jealousies. It got more and more crazy all the time, until it seemed it was all crazy all the time. Not good for a stable, long-lasting relationship. Not a great environment in which to raise children. At this point, Lorraine is starting to believe that living in New York City is not the best environment for the kids. She feels they have no freedom to ride bikes or play outside, and she wants her kids to have a more traditional place, a little, someplace a little safer to grow up. And Harvey reluctantly agrees, and the family will move to Rockland County, a short drive from Manhattan, but a world away as it goes. Surprisingly enough, the move does not ease the tensions between Lorraine and Harvey. Their fighting escalates and becomes more and more frequent. It appears to Lorraine that Harvey either doesn't know how to or doesn't want to be happy. Hmm. He would just become irritated by her more joyful, lighthearted attitude and assumes that Harvey does, that Lorraine just doesn't understand enough about his life to see reality. Lorraine knows his cocaine addiction is getting worse. Life with Harvey Keitel is becoming more and more intolerable for Lorraine. Once she's on the phone talking to Michael Douglas about their film Radio Flyer, and Harvey becomes enraged when she accidentally cuts off an incoming call for him. She writes, he comes storming up the stairs and busts through the door, screaming, Hey, my calls aren't important. Whoa. Why don't you just go suck Michael Douglas's dick? Whoa. Mm-hmm. Knowing that Michael Douglas could hear Harvey, Lorraine is horrified with embarrassment and quickly ends the phone call. In nineteen ninety, Lorraine leaves for Idaho to shoot for a film called A Talent for the Game. As you can imagine, she's a little relieved to have some time away mm-hmm. from the miserable and stressful existence in the home life with Hardy. Lorraine had been cast as the leading female role. The leading male role was Edward James Almost. All right, from back in the Miami Vice days. And Lorraine remembers how kind Almost had been to her when she was fired from Miami Vice. And as soon as she saw him again, he smiled really big and was very kind and very welcoming and Lorraine really finds herself drawn to Edward James. His cheeriness and concern for others was quite a big contrast versus Harvey Keitel's Mm -hmm. brooding intensity, and Lorraine is so vulnerable from the volatility of that relationship that I don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't take too long for Lorraine to fall for her new co-star. Lorraine writes, I can't justify having had a romantic affair with Eddie during that time. It was my weakness and my need for loving approval that I acted on, and it was wrong. I took full responsibility. I never felt that I was driven to do it by Harvey's behavior or my unhappiness. I wasn't trying to get back at him. There's no other way to explain my actions than to say that I caved in to a feeling. Leaving the film shoot to return home, Lorraine feels incredibly guilty and resolves to make her life with Harvey work. But as soon as she gets back home, Harvey is suspicious and accuses her of sleeping with Eddie. Lorraine denies it, and the couple continues on with their precarious situation Mm -hmm. just kind of waiting for the next explosion. Yeah. Sounds delightful. But during this time, they're both working a lot. They're having incredible career success. Goodfellas was released to incredible reviews and box office numbers, and when the Academy Award nominations are announced in January 1991, the film was nominated for basically everything, and Lorraine was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Wow, that's quite a journey. Lorraine doesn't win that year. It will be Whoopi Goldberg that will take home that Oscar for her role in Ghost. Ah, yes. Okay. You're a danger, girl. hmm but it was an incredible honor for Lorraine and a great boost for her career. Nominations tend to do that. Yeah, absolutely. After finishing Lorraine Does the Medicine Man with Sean Connery, working nonstop, trying to manage her relationship tensions, Lorraine is offered the leading role in My Cousin Vinny, mm. but decides to turn it down. Oh, boy. hmm She just didn't feel like she had the physical or emotional strength to do it then. And as we all know, Marisa Tomei would get that role and nail it, winning herself the Mm -hmm. Academy Award in 1993. Yep. They were. Love that movie. You know how you have that handful of movies that if you catch them on wherever they are in the movie, you will stop what you're doing, sit down and watch the movie? 100%. My Cousin Vinny. Every single time. One of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Lorraine and Harvey. Because the story's about them. Their relationship is rapidly unraveling. He is using drugs more and more often now, and his anger is out of control. Lorraine is miserable and spends her time just trying not to upset him. I mean, this story really does have yeah, it, every classic repetition it, in sad relationships.
1: Yeah, it sounds completely miserable.
0: Harvey is also obsessed with suspiciousness thinking about Edward James almost. Finally, after being badgered about it over and over and over again, Lorraine finally confesses the affair in one of their many fights. By that time, Lorraine said that Harvey had no interest in listening to how she felt. She'll write, I cried out of hopelessness. I had already been condemned in Harvey's mind and I could never make it right. He would never hear me. He didn't care about what I had to say. He didn't even want to know. The sight of me revolted him. I cried because I had done the one thing I knew would doom us forever. I had told Harvey the truth about Eddie. It
1: sounds like they were doomed forever yeah. sometime back, and maybe uh-huh. maybe she can let that go. Oh, you thought things were bad then? Things get
0: uglier from this point on. Why don't they just leave each other? Well, Harvey moved out. <laughs> But Harvey just doesn't move out and, like, class acts it. Harvey moves out and tells everyone he meets about Lorraine's affair. Oh, God. He makes the split entirely about... Oh, it's all her fault. Almost, right, instead of the culmination of growing tension, dysfunction, Mm -hmm. his drug addiction, his disappearing for days, Mm -hmm. right? One day, Harvey screams at Lorraine... How do you think Stella will feel when she hears that her mother's sleeping with other men? He was full of rage, could not be reasoned with, and Lorraine is begging him not to tell their child, yeah. who's far too young, to understand any of that information. But alas, the legal battles will begin. Mm. Even though they didn't get married. Correct. They still share custody of sure. child. Sure. So at first, their lawyers negotiate a custody agreement where Lorraine would have custody of Stella, but Harvey could see her as frequently as his schedule allowed, and Lorraine and Harvey together, the two of them, would consult on all important decisions. Best laid plans. How's that go? Unfortunately, whenever they would meet to exchange Stella, Harvey would scream at Lorraine Mm. and could not just put his anger aside. Right. Here's her homework. Here's her backpack. She's into these snacks lately. Here's some goldfish. No, that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. that way. He's angry. And one day after spending time with her dad, six-year-old Stella looks at her mom, Lorraine, and asks her mom, Mommy, are you having sex with Eddie Murphy? Oh, my God. Because Harvey had told Stella... Eddie, yeah. ...that Lorraine had been having sex with another man that he identified as Eddie. Right. And Eddie Murphy is the The... only Eddie that six-year-old Stella Mm. knows about and just assumes it's him. Wow. As you can imagine, the fighting and the vitriol escalates from this point. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter if they're at a school party or a public park. Harvey and Lorraine fight. It's just miserable. Miserable. Harvey then stops sending money for Stella and stops paying his portion of the mortgage. Harvey also demands that Lorraine return all of the jewelry he'd ever bought her. And Lorraine doesn't want to do that because she wants to keep it for the kids, Mm -hmm. right? Like, what? No, this should go to your daughter. Right. Ironically... All of the jewelry that Harvey ever purchased for her was later stolen from the house. Gosh. It's a mystery. Such a weird, confusing thing. Yeah, one day, Lorraine and the girls returned from a trip and find the house had been robbed. Wow. But the only thing missing from Hmm. the house that was robbed, just the only thing, was the jewelry that Harvey Keitel had purchased for Lorraine. Over the years,
1: that is so interesting.
0: Mysteries. We need to get Nancy Drew or Harriet the Spy on this one.
1: Yeah. Someone call
0: NYPD. Well, oddly enough, like other valuable jewelry, including a Rolex watch. Still there? Just, yeah, still sitting there, not touched. The wig that Lorraine had worn in Radio Flyer was sitting on top of her alarm clock. So, a crisp stack of $100 bills just sitting there. Yeah, just plain view. I, no, but just the, just the jewelry. Interesting. Lorraine naturally will file a police report, mm-hmm. but nothing comes of the incident. But this is far from the only time that the authorities, the police, were called. In fact, it was after one of Harvey's rages that a police officer suggested that Lorraine and the girls actually go to a family shelter. Wow. Lorraine thought that that idea was really drastic sure. at first. Like, why would I do that? Don't be an alarmist. But then realized that she was so emotionally drained that she was unable to find the help she needed, even though she had the financial resources to, like, she just, it depletes you. It depletes you inside. Mm -hmm. So Lorraine goes and she's greatly helped by many counselors in that family shelter. The most valuable thing to come from that counseling was insisting that Lorraine set boundaries with Harvey and right. make arrangements for someone else to transfer their daughter back and forth between them. Yep. And refuse all other face-to-face interactions with Harvey. Just.
1: Yeah, when it's that to- when it's that toxic, like, that's kind of all you can do.
0: Cutting Harvey out of Lorraine's life does physically help a great deal for a little while, but then Edward James Olmos comes back into the picture. And things end up getting even worse. Oh, God. Which we're going to find out about when we come right back from break. This story. Right?
1: Back in a minute. All right. So I guess we're not captaining the Battlestar
0: Galactica yet, but but tell us about the return of Eddie. So understandably, Lorraine is emotionally fragile and devastated from her breakup, as well as the aftermath with Harvey Keitel. Mm-hmm. Edward James Olmos, Eddie... Eddie, we love Eddie, reaches out and feels somewhat responsible for the effects of all of it on Lorraine and her kids. He had also had a divorce and children and knows how difficult that can be. Eddie feels like all the adults have an obligation to minimize the damage and help the kids feel secure. That's priority one. Should be, yeah. And this was... Clearly, exactly what Lorraine wanted and needed to hear. So after more than a year of them taking some time, spending some time together, Lorraine finally feels comfortable introducing Eddie to her kids. Takes a year. but That's just Mm -hmm. smart and safe. Not only did her kids like Eddie, all the kids, his kids and her kids get along great too. And Lorraine is like, this is great. This is the kind of warmth and comfortable family atmosphere that I've craved. Like, this is so nice. And Lorraine and Margot and Stella's lives become much happier and lighter as their family and Eddie's family spend more time together and get closer. But not for long. Dun, dun, dun. Because the out-of-control rageaholic is back? Shortly after, there are some very disturbing allegations that are made against Eddie that would rock all of their oh worlds. No. One of their good friends told Lorraine that almost had molested her teenage daughter oh my God. while watching television with several of the kids on a vacation they all went on. And Lorraine is stunned and horrified. And she goes home and asks Eddie about the incident. And he says it must have been a shakedown because nothing like that had ever happened. The girl's nanny, Ruth, who was in the room the whole time, had also vehemently denied that anything inappropriate had happened. What contributed, though, to Lorraine's doubt was a letter the mother had given her that was supposedly written by the 15-year-old girl. Being the mother of young daughters herself, Lorraine felt like it didn't sound as if a teenager had written the letter. She started to wonder if the woman she thought was her friend was betraying her, making this story up to get money or attention or something. The incident had allegedly happened several months before the friend decided to tell Lorraine, even though she claims that her daughter had told her right after it happened. Lorraine also finds this to be a little suspicious. She confronts her friend, Lorraine does, and asks her why on earth she would have kept that information from her. Yeah. You think Eddie molested your daughter, but you didn't tell me about it immediately when you knew he was with me and my daughters. The final straw for Lorraine is when her friends said they had gone to the sex crimes unit in New York City to report the incident. And they found the girl's letter and accusations to be credible. But the sex crimes unit couldn't do anything about it because it wasn't their jurisdiction since the incident happened allegedly in Florida. The friend and the mother of the alleged victim said that she had decided against pursuing it since she would have had to go to Florida. And Lorraine replies to this probably not a friend. Let me get this straight. You're saying that Eddie is a child molester, but you're just going to drop it? You're just going to let it go? And the friend said that going to Florida would be complicated and expensive and inconvenient. And Lorraine angrily says to her, if someone molested my daughter, I'd go to the fucking moon to get them. Yeah, I... That The The mother said she just wants to forget the whole thing. But then Eddie hears that the family's lawyer wants $750,000 just to forget the whole thing and make the whole thing go away.
1: Yeah, that, okay.
0: Eddie's lawyers suggest that he actually go ahead and pay it mm-hmm. because if it went public, right. it would greatly damage his reputation regardless of his guilt or innocence. And so Eddie ends up paying a lower sum and receiving a signed document from the family agreeing never to discuss the yeah. situation. Nondisclosure. Lorraine's fully convinced that Eddie is not guilty of these accusations. Yeah. I love that the
1: family's under an NDA and Lorraine's like typing out her memoir all about it.
0: (laughs) Lorraine does have a regret though. And she says she makes a huge mistake in not telling Harvey about the situation. Oh no. Because Lorraine doesn't want to like, she's scared of him and his reactions and she just doesn't like it's handled. I, I have it, but of course Harvey finds out. So when he does, he goes to his lawyers and demands two amendments to the custody agreement. The first is that his daughter Stella is never to be around Eddie or his sons. The second, the nanny Ruth, must be fired on the grounds that she didn't tell Harvey immediately about the allegations.
1: Wow. Oh, God. So Lorraine has finally, like, Gotten her kids into a much more comfortable mm-hmm. family situation. Yep, yep. And so X jumps in to be like, actually, your new guy has to go and the kid's nanny has to go.
0: Correct. Okay. Okay, but Harvey Cottel is not going to get his way legally. Okay. That the courts will not do that, but he'll just have another idea. And that idea was to go to the tabloids. Mm-hmm. And at that point, mm-hmm. things get even uglier super ugly yeah in the midst of all of this remarkably enough wedding bells ring for lorraine brocco and edward james almost who marry in 1994 <laughs> but the custody court battles are constant and horribly contentious according to new york magazine lorraine brocco once actually flipped harvey off in the courtroom and barked at him so you don't think i can protect your daughter huh harvey The judge orders her to sit down and admonishes Lorraine's attorney to get control of his client. Brocko tossed her hair and yelled, Margaritas for everyone! What? Wow. She's spunky. I mean, it's a heartache. Sure. Firecracker. Oh my God, that judge must have just... In 1996, it takes a while, the court will rule in favor of Lorraine retaining custody But Keitel is going to take the case to appellate court. The molestation charges are not the only thing Harvey is bringing up to support his request for amended custody. Keitel will allege that almost his life was being threatened by members of the Mexican mafia. This is a California prison gang because Eddie had made the film American Me about them. Lorraine has her fair share of complaints against Kaitel's parenting as well. One such incident... <laughs> this is terrible. We thought we'd heard a bad recorded phone call incident with Alec Baldwin, Baldwin. and his daughter, mm-hmm. but I don't know. This could go in contention. One such incident was a recorded phone message left by Stella on her mother's answering machine when she's staying with her father, and it was played in court. And it said, Hi, Mom. This is a joke. Don't get upset. Dad taught me, you bitch, you fucking bastard. Bye, Mom. You fucking bastard, bitch. Fuck you. Bye-bye. Wow. Okay. Which would be shocking to hear on your answering machine. From your seven or eight-year-old or whatever, yeah. Harvey Cattell just laughs it off, and he's like, it was a joke for fuck's sake. When I was little, older guys in the neighborhood would give me quarters to say curse words. That's not all, though. There's more. There's more. Lorraine claims that Harvey is constantly prodding his daughter and obsessively questioning her about almost and Baracko to the point of great anxiety and emotional distress for the kid. Yeah. The court documents state that after months of this, Stella had voiced suicidal ideation. Stella had also developed juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is a stress-based disease in children and the court agreed that this was due, at least in part, to Kaitel's interrogations of the kid.
1: Well, and it's, I mean, that, like, incredible intensity mm-hmm. that she fell in love with all those years ago, like, is now, like, in a completely distorted way, just ending up on this kid. Luckily, the court
0: restricts his conversations with his daughter. So after many lengthy hearings, many court battles, remember, it's gone to the appellate judge, The appellate judge will also rule in Lorraine's favor, stating clearly there's no evidence that Stella is in additional danger by being with Mr. Olmos. In the end, though, the custody battle lasts five years and will cost Lorraine millions of dollars and leave her spiraling into depression. By the late 1990s, Bracco was in a dark clinical depression. She separates from Eddie in 1998, and in 2002 they divorce. She'll write separating from Eddie was a huge decision. I initiated it, but it was heartbreaking, another relationship that didn't work out. Not only is Lorraine horribly depressed mourning another failed relationship, but she is also broke. And with no other financial options, Lorraine Bracco files for bankruptcy. It's a heartache. Lorraine, so broke. I mean, after all the custody battles, after the latest divorce, she's unable to pay her mortgage. She's in debt to her lawyers. Her reputation has also taken a hit. She hasn't worked in a while. She will tell ABC News it was horrifying and embarrassing getting foreclosure notices Lawyers knocking on your door, wanting their money, and no work to be found. I mean,
1: it sounds like, it sounds like Harvey Keitel kind of set
0: out to ruin her life. He did, yeah. And, and yeah, and really, really made a, made a good show of it. It takes Lorraine a while to admit that she does have a serious problem and needs professional help for her depression. In reflection on all of it, much later she'll say, I was so unhappy. But I always thought I'd get over it. I thought, I'm a strong woman, I can do this, but I couldn't. Since recovering from her own depression, Lorraine has become an advocate for those suffering from depression. As she started to feel like herself again, Lorraine Bracco goes public in a commercial for the medication Zoloft, Mm -hmm. which Lorraine believes helped her greatly, along with therapy. She partnered with Pfizer to create a website called DepressionHelp.com, to encourage others to get help sooner than she did, saying millions are suffering. I don't want them to be ashamed. But Lorraine, firecracker of a girl, there's no holding her down. She is going to make more than a personal comeback in her life. She makes a huge professional comeback as well when she was cast as Dr. Jennifer Melfi in the HBO juggernaut The Sopranos. Sure. But, uh... She turned it down initially. She says, I told them, I've done Carmella. I'm not doing it again. I just wasn't interested. She was, however, drawn to the smaller part that was far more nuanced and interesting to her. This was the role of soprano psychiatrist and therapist, Dr. Jennifer Melfi.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Lorraine says, I told show creator David Chase, I was a different woman than I had been on Goodfellas I wanted to make Melvie the first educated Italian-American girl people ever saw. This proves to be a wise choice. Lorraine is nominated four times for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series. Fantastic. Nominated for three Golden Globes for Best Television Actress in a Drama Series for her work on The Sopranos. On the show, she'll win two Emmys for Outstanding Drama Series, nominated in total, a, nominated in total those seven times. Every season, it was on the air. The Sopranos also won five Golden Globes for best drama series. Lorraine, huzzah! She's able to pay off her debt and get out of bankruptcy just a few seasons after being on The Sopranos. Saying the show was a blessing, mm-hmm. it gives me huge financial, it gives me huge financial security. It meant I could think, oh my God, I can go to work next year. I don't really have to worry. That's a nice feeling. (sighs) I love her story. She's just amazing. Lorraine has been in a successful long-term relationship with her boyfriend, Jason Sippola. This is her moving on. The couple meet, actually, while filming The Sopranos. Sippola, a former Syracuse University basketball player, was a driver for the cast. And this relationship will shock a few folks because of the age difference. Jason is 21 years younger than Lorraine. Go get (laughs) him! Hey, but whatever they're doing seems to be working because Jason and Lorraine have been together for nearly 20 years. Good for them. Almost two decades, yeah. Lorraine has done many things since The Sopranos, including far more than acting. Gotta love it. She's bought her own vineyard, started her own wine label. She's written two books, and in 2020 had her own HGTV television series called My Big Italian Adventure, which chronicles Lorraine's experience renovating an Italian property into her dream vacation home. Interesting. I may have seen some of that. Oh, yeah? I bet it's fascinating. Lorraine Baracco, don't tell her what to do. Like, just an incredible story. Every theme, just such a good trashy divorces tale of... Down and out and resilience and triumph. Big thanks to Melissa for pulling that one together. Yeah,
1: I had no idea that there was so much drama between Harvey Keitel and Edward James Olmos, for instance. Like, Who knew?
0: Hmm. This is what Trashy Divorces not does I. for you, friends. Y'all, holy cats. I don't know how many trash cans. I'm not giving her any trash cans. I'm giving her all the halos and awards for picking herself up and moving right along mm-hmm. after being in a number of terrible... Terrible yeah. situations. Yeah. Also, Harvey Keitel, lighten up. I'm not going to give him any trash cans because I'm a little afraid of Harvey Keitel. Yeah, I'm not after gonna... that, yeah. <laughs> going to leave that one alone and go out with me for this season. That's the end of my season 16. We are going to be back next Sunday for our season finale. Can you believe it? I can, actually. I've been here the whole time. You've got a great <laughs> story coming for any of y'all who want A little bit more Trashy Divorces in the meantime, don't forget, you can find us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. This week we had a dumpster dive covering the 42 broken engagements of Drake, whose (laughs) true love is Drake.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Seems to be true. You can join the fun over on Patreon for as little as two bucks a month. If you want to show some love to your favorite good podcast about bad relationships, you'll get all those episodes on a private feed too. Kind of a fun holiday gift to yourself. We do have some free episodes available for you. Tell everybody that link, Stacey. That is
1: bit.ly slash trash candy. We just liberate stuff from the paywall, plug that
0: into your favorite internet web browser and it'll take you right to it. Yeah, there's a handful of episodes up now, and I'll probably change that out towards the beginning of the year. But I think, my dear, my darlings, that is Trashy Divorces for today. Thank you again for joining us today, for spending your time with us, for your awesome emails, your kind reviews, for telling your friends. Stacy, I think I can speak for both of us in wishing everyone, every single one of our Trash Pandas, a wonderful holiday season be gentle on yourselves be gentle with each other and keep your hands clean friends keep your hearts trashy we'll see you back sunday for the big finale bye big love everybody bye and thanks to you for listening trashy divorces is a hemlock creatives production created and produced right here in atlanta georgia by us stacy and alicia